Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we are going to be discussing the ends of games. How to wrap up a game. But before we end, let's begin. So Matt, you had a big trip out yesterday, we understand. Oh yes, a very, very long day in London. Do you want to tell us a little about it? Well, um, there's a hashtag that will have to preface some of this because uh, J.K. Rowling doesn't want many people uh, going on the net and saying all the intricacies behind um, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Oh, cool. Well, don't give us any spoilers because I think, well, given you enjoyed it, I would definitely like to go and see it. Oh, yeah, but honestly, it was it was something else. There's Tiff well, before we went down um, had read the screen uh, the screenplay or the um, the script rather the, the play. That's it. I knew there was a word for it. I just couldn't yeah. think what it was. The play. Yeah. yeah. The play's a thing. Uh, the stage directions weren't exactly, uh, let's say, to the letter of what you see on the, um, see on the stage. That there's a fair amount of elaboration. I know one of the things she was really excited about going down there, even though she knew the plot, was, I want to see how they do this on stage. And, whoa, honestly, some of the, some of the effects that they pull off are really, really get your mind thinking, how the hell have they done that? So even if you've read the play, then you're in for some big surprises. Oh, yes. And, and this is on in London, in Leicester Square, and it's two shows, you said, right? There's part one and part two. Um, you don't have to see them both on the same day, although we did. And but I was slowly still feeling the blood return to my feet. It did look like you were up in the gods. Oh, we were. Oh, yes. With The minute we went over the top was the vertigo of thinking, holy shit, don't let go of the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if you'd fallen, you would have gone all the way down. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. It's really, really fun. But, but if I book up long. tickets, I'm looking at, like, next year. Oh, you might be lucky if you're in for 2018. The year after next year? Yeah. Okay. Well, we booked in July last year, and it's November this year that we finally got to see Oh, wow. One of the other nice things, we just kill a bit of time between picking up tickets and then going into the show, is we went down to Orcs Nest, with the local gaming store, which is pretty much a stone throw away from the theatre. Went in there to have a look around uh, their Cthulhu selection. Odd enough, picked up uh, the new copies of Alone Against the Flames and the Quick Start, 7th Ed Quick Start Guide. Because they've got the new layouts now, so again, my collection is nearing completion. So that's a paperback <laughs> copy of the Quick Start rules. Yes, with uh, the same cover bound. or same cover, a little bit, a um, little bit more intense blue, but then has the same layout on the inside that you'll be familiar with from Pop Cthulhu. And lo and behold, as I'm looking through um, the uh, the various Cthulhu material they've got there, I find a gentleman next to me who's picking up a copy of the seventh edition rulebook by the name of Thomas Grooms. Um, is one of our listeners. All right. Hello, ah, Thomas. Yeah, hello, Thomas. Yeah, he, he was uh, praising us and saying how he'd uh, been listening to Blasphemous Tomes and it got him back into gaming after such a long time and was showing me a notebook that he's been putting together, which would be a great in-character prop, um, showing details of various expeditionary notes. In fact, it is the kind of thing that Jackson himself would have carried around with him. Nice. And what about you, Scott? I haven't been out or doing anything exciting. I've mostly been spent uh, hunched over my laptop working furiously. And what have you been working on? The most recent thing I've, I've completed was a bit of editing work on a new game that's coming out called The Queen's Men. Matt Machel, who did The Agency, uh, which is a, a sort of 60s spy game, very tongue-in-cheek, very much in the style of the old Avengers TV series, uh, did this alternate setting for The Agency, which is uh, set in Elizabethan times. You're all playing uh, members of Queen Elizabeth's court, you're charged with doing these secret missions that involve the occult as well as political stuff and and various machinations. But the thing is that it's very campy, very strange, because you're not just playing these missions. You're also playing a TV series that was made about it. So this is a series, a fictitious TV series that that is was made supposedly in 1975. And so... 
for example, if your character fails a role or something goes spectacularly wrong in the mission, you can ascribe some of it to the way the episode was shot. So it might be the special effects going wrong or your costume slipped or something like that. We don't have the budget for that. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a big part. Budget negotiations <laughs> and strikes and so on are, are all the way through this. Oh, nice. Wo- that sounds fun. Wobbly yeah. Doctor Who sets. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's a marvellous game. I can't wait to actually run it at some stage. Yeah, sounds definitely right up my alley. Well, I do, I do take great joy in whenever someone at work, when we get talking about films, comes on to the inevitable subject of, so which Avenger would you like to be? And when I say John Steed, they just look at me weird. <laughs> <laughs> and this week, I received another envelope through the post. It was addressed to myself, but I think it's extended to all three of us. We'll have to pass it around. It's a copy of the Grognard Files from Dirk the Dice. It's a old-school fanzine, kind of magazine, loosely based on a magazine we might all be familiar with, <laughs> uh, The White Dwarf, nice. uh, for its format. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty good read. It's, it's, it's nice, yeah. I'll show oh. you guys afterwards. But oh, yeah, we'll yeah. stick a photo of it in the show notes. Oh, yeah, I can't wait to see yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, well, cheers for that, Dirk. It's time for the Lovecraftian word of the... And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And what's the word, Matt? Favourite of mine, actually. Revelation. I should just put the best book in the Bible. That's all the description should be underneath this. As a noun, one. The act or process of disclosing something previously secret or obscure, especially something true. Two. A fact disclosed or revealed, especially in a dramatic or surprising way. Three, in ecclesiastical terms. A. It goes into sub sub points now. (laughs) So I thought that was an expression of excitement there. (laughs) In ecclesiastical terms. A. (laughs) A. It's almost like having that picture of Buddy Christ kind of (laughs) winking at you and pointing at the screen. Get on with it. God's disclosure of his own nature and his purpose for mankind. That's deep. Especially through the words of human intermediaries. B. Something in which such a divine disclosure is contained, such as the Bible. So this features 43 times in Lovecraft's fiction. The whole process of revelation seems to be core to a lot of his stories, that it's building up towards this this unwanted revelation in the end. I mean, particularly The Call of Cthulhu. The Call of Cthulhu is all about that revelation of, of the, the fact that Cthulhu is there slumbering below the seas, the fact that you know, he will one day awake and walk amongst us again, the fact that you know, he is this maddening presence in the lives of the sensitive and yeah it's, it's quite a powerful one and also in shadow of rinsmouth you know the revelation to the main character of his own bloodline and his fate uh, that, that that awaits him i think despite the fact that lovecraft himself was a materialist the religious overtone to revelation really sort of fits with a lot of his work because it is about that sense of awe it is about that sense of majesty and encountering things larger than yourselves um you know that sense of the ineffable that uh, lies at the heart of the religious meaning of revelation and that suffuses lovecraft's work in fact i remember you know some years back we had a very long series of discussions, you and me, Paul, about uh, the nature of what made Lovecraftian horror for us. Because, I mean, this was, I, I think, back in the days when he was starting, was starting to formulate what became Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition. And we were talking about different ways of trying to capture Lovecraftian horror in gaming, whether or not it was possible, whether you could emulate a Lovecraft story. I posed the question to you at some stage of what you thought the most important aspect or the most inherent Lovecraftian element in his stories was and the thing you you picked up on was that one word revelation yeah I think I can't take credit for that I think I asked my wife what she thought (laughs) (laughs) and she said it's about revelation so I was like well that's a revelation yeah you're right actually yeah (laughs) so uh, yeah I think Lucy gets the credit for that one I clearly remember that but yeah I think it is it's about revelations to the characters and usually the sand hit that follows 
Well, that's where the sand hit often comes from, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it's the, you know, it's a revealing of hidden knowledge to the character that leads to the, the change in, in mind. Speaking of which, let's take a look at how Lovecraft himself used the word revelation. From The Call of Cthulhu. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But some day the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. And from Hypnos. Human utterance can best convey the general character of our experiences by calling them plungings or soarings. For, in every period of revelation, some part of our minds broke boldly away from all that is real and present, rushing aerially along shocking, unlighted and fear-haunted abysses, and occasionally tearing through certain well-marked and typical obstacles describable only as viscous, uncouth clouds or vapours. And from At the Mountains of Madness. In the whole spectacle, there was a persistent, pervasive hint of stupendous secrecy and potential revelation. As if these stark, nightmare spires marked the pylons of a frightful gateway into forbidden spheres of dream and complex gulfs of remote time, space and ultra-dimensionality. And now let's move on to our main topic, ends. How do we actually wrap up a game? Rocks fall, everyone dies. That's the easiest way. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at the techniques for bringing games to a close, how that comes about. I mean, it seems obvious, but there are various reasons why a game might come to an end and various ways of forming the ending. And in earlier episodes, in the past two episodes, we've covered logically enough beginnings then we followed it with middles and here we are the final episode talking about endings obviously a lot of this is going to depend on what kind of game it is you're running whether it's a one-shot or a campaign whether it's a published thing or something that you're writing yourself whether it's something largely improvised if you're running a published scenario or a published campaign then it will have a built-in endpoint. It will have a conclusion in there. It may be something scripted, it may be something more open, but you have a certain amount of material there, and when you reach the end of it, that's it done. They can be subverted. I know we've we've done that at least in one published campaign. So it's not always going to end up going to that one point. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, if you're rewriting stuff or improvising around what you're playing with, then it might extend off, you might end up spinning it off into other things. So, for example, if you reach the final chapter of something like Tatters of the King or Beyond the Mountains of Madness, you know that you've reached the end of the campaign. I mean, sometimes you'll be playing those campaigns and you may divert, as Matt suggested, that we've, we've done in some of the campaigns that we've, we've played. We've kind of diverted from the, uh, the, the kind of order of the chapters and you kind of ended up somewhere and kind of formed your own ending. And sometimes, of course, you may decide to play on with the same characters. So I think, <laughs> for example, weren't the two of you in a game of Escape from Innsmouth that ended up moving into, what was it, Master, Master of the yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Taking a whole load of Mythos score with us. Oh, boy. I mean, sometimes for a long campaign, particularly a, a kind of homebrew one, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking particularly back to an Ars Magica campaign that I ran that, that, that played over several years. There were several sections of that and we'd come to a, a an end of a section but we'd always know we were going to play on but in the final game it was down to the, the, the this kind of geography really and the players kind of moving around the country and, and realizing we weren't we needed to kind of push it towards a uh, an ending we had a kind of an overview of the the character's story arcs and and one of the the characters was a, was a wizard well there were many wizards it was Ars Magica that wizard became like the grand wizard of the land another one of the player characters was uh, a minor noble and they became a king of a land so we kind of escalated it to a sort of an epic level but we kind of used a different rule set really to allow us to give a a broad overview of things wrapping up 
And sometimes the game has simply run its course. You know, maybe you've just committed to playing it for a short while because this was something you wanted to try out. Maybe in the case of some games, there is a, a structure that actually pushes it to the end. Grey Ranks is designed to be played out over a certain number of sessions. The mechanics change to force an end of it. And at the end of it, that game has run its course. And often for the three of us, we're running games at conventions where we've got a four-hour slot and we have to fit the game into that slot. So we've kind of planned the game to be about that duration, but sometimes then you've got to kind of drive it towards a conclusion. And that's, you know, that's about deciding when to end. And similarly, I mean, for campaigns, we play quite a lot of games at the club. At that, we've got a very fixed structure that we've got uh, campaign blocks which run for eight weeks. So if you're playing a short uh, campaign, you know at the end of that eight weeks you've really got to wrap it up. And also, I mean, games can just end for a variety of reasons, fizzle out perhaps. You know, people move away, uh, as you were mentioning before, with your Ars Magica game. Also, you know, sometimes people will just simply lose interest in the game. Perhaps they wanted to try this thing out, but it turned out that it wasn't the game they really wanted to play. Perhaps the, you know, they, they've created a character that they didn't particularly engage with, um, or the, the way they, the game is going isn't to their taste. But I think one of the things that I try to strive for, I would liken it to TV shows that get cancelled, you know, after a few episodes or half, after half a dozen episodes. And you're left kind of always wondering what would have happened to the characters or, you know, wishing it, it would come back. And I think with a game, if you can, if you can foresee that this is going to be, it's going to be cut short and we're not going to play again after tonight, just you know, it's nice to try and provide some resolution and actually bring it to an end rather than just, okay, well, we'll leave all this. Building the game to a climax. One of the most important things in setting up the end of a game is making sure that the players know the end is coming. Because I think people tend to play the game quite differently when they know they're moving into the end stages. That perhaps some of the caution goes, or some of the you know, things that they've been holding in reserve, uh, you know, limited-use items or you know, ammunition or something like that. Burning all your luck pool. Yeah, just <laughs> things that you want to do as a player... I mean, it's good to do those things when you think of them, but, you know, you don't always have the chance to do that. And if you've got something you're burning to do or you, there's something on your sheet that you know you want to bring out, you want to have a chance to do that and you want to be able to let it breathe and give it a bit of time and, and kind of express it. And sometimes you want to, you know, send your character out on a blaze of glory or something if you know it's the, the, the end of the story. And sometimes that can be quite an organic thing to do. Particularly, again, I think if you're playing a published campaign, you'll have a sort of escalation of events. There'll be an indication that perhaps if there's a major campaign villain that they're moving into their end game, or if it's a geographical-based one that you're, you're moving towards the location that you've been heading towards all this time, you're closing in on it. And so the players will know from the cues within the game that they're reaching the end there. Sometimes, though, it may be less obvious, in which case you could always just simply tell the players. You did this fairly recently in a game, Paul, I think, uh, you know, one that you were running for us, playtest of, of one of the chapters you did of um, uh, a poison tree. We didn't realise that we were that close to wrapping it up, I think, and you just sort of said, oh, yeah, next week will probably be the last session. I actually thought it probably had a few more sessions to play out at that stage, knowing that the next session was, was likely to be the last one certainly changed the way I played it. Hmm. Like you say, Scott, the situation should be escalating as it as it drives towards the end. The players should generally know that they're they're coming toward. They don't know what the ending is, but they kind of know that things are ramping up. That that we're tooling up towards the end. Just, I mean, I, I kind of imagine it a bit like the pacing of a film, where we know we're coming towards the end scene. I mean, the final end scene might be a downbeat one or whatever, and we're not necessarily talking about a, a high action scene, but it should be we're coming towards some sort of confrontation, some sort of resolution in the story. And yeah, it needs to be all pushing towards that. And as, as the, as the keeper, as the GM, you need to be kind of pulling everything together, I think, and making sure all the players are involved. Yeah. And the things you've been holding back on, perhaps you can bring into play now or, yeah, a, a classic example is, 
perhaps if there are a number of uh, villains in the the campaign or a number of different threats, that this is the stage at which you start narrowing them down. That you know perhaps it's all focusing on some particular confrontation or end goal or whatever, and perhaps you know that that dogged little presence that's been going around harrying the uh, the the players or harrying the investigators all the way through the game. You know this is a good time for them to have some sort of showdown with that and take it out of play before you move on to the actual real big end scene and if one of the players is sort of saying oh i think i'll just sit outside in the car while you all go in you might want to say to that player well actually maybe you want to go in with them because this is going to be like the the end of the game and you're going to be left sat in the car while it all goes on (laughs) that'd be a real real climactic they suddenly they're, they're sat out in the car the house blows up Oh well. Well, they survived. <laughs> you know? I, I, I have, I have played games and run games where players have done that. Well, I was thinking of uh, one game of yours that I uh, that I always fondly remember is that having survived the Doorwood scenario, that I ran away at the optimum moment, made the incre- made the very difficult roll and survived. Oddly enough, as the house blew up behind me. <laughs> <laughs> Also associated with all this, I think the players have really got to know or be given some indication, usually in character, of what is at stake here. And this doesn't have to be something earth-shattering. I mean, you know, if you're playing a much more character-driven campaign, this could be just you know foreshadowing or highlighting what is at stake for that character, depending on the choices they make or you know what they they decide to engage with or run away from or whatever. Um, yeah, I guess it's worth sort of as GM or keeper, standing back a little bit and just making sure everybody knows, make sure everybody's on the same page as they come towards the ending so they have all kind of grasped what the greater situation is, really. And one good tool for that, actually thinking about it, is one we discussed last time uh, in the middle session, which is those session recaps. If you have a recap, particularly beyond the penultimate or the final session, and it turns out, you know, when you're getting the players to relate to you what they think is going on or what has been happening, and you realise that they have missed a big part of the jigsaw there, this might be a good chance to hand them that missing piece. Mm-hmm. It's like the uh, what happened last time on Supernatural or, or whatever TV shows we see. And as we come to certain key episodes, we get flashbacks to episodes that happened ages ago. And you're like, oh my God, I'd forgotten that character. Oh, well, they must be coming back. I mean, we don't need to do quite that in a role-playing game, but if you bring in some key NPC that you think is key and the players are like, who's that? I don't remember that guy. Where do they come mm-hmm. from? I remember that in at least one instance where, I don't think it's a spoiler to say it was from Realm of Shadows, where you introduced a character that something we thought basically something bad had happened to him. And then easily a couple of months later, that NPC turns up again. I think, oh, okay, so maybe he didn't die then. Oh, (laughs) Oh, but you remembered him. I think you had to do a bit of prompting to say it's that guy. Oh, okay. But saying, oh, okay. One technique I've used a couple of times that I quite like is having almost setting what you know the campaign or the one-shot conclusion is going to be from the start, like saying this is your mission objective, essentially. But then keeping it relatively distant, saying, oh, yeah, it's still over the horizon. It's, you've still got some time. You've still got some time. It's all, it's all good. You're building towards it. And then when they've got in that kind of comfort zone of thinking, oh, yeah, we have plenty of time to deal with it. We can sit and plan. Introduce that one element that then suddenly makes them go one plus two equals that end scenario on the horizon is now suddenly right at our doorstep. Hmm. And that hmm. you go from comfortable to, holy shit, someone put the foot on the accelerator really fast. now the end i feel like i should break into my way now (laughs) (laughs) they rolled it (laughs) (laughs) the dice never roll your way (laughs) no never (laughs) well we spent a lot of time now setting up the ending is come round for that end this is the final scene well the final session certainly maybe the final scene this is where we're going to end the one shot the campaign how do we do it? I usually, like like I've said a couple of times before, I just roll with what the players throw at me. I set up a situation and I think of a few kind of exit points. I think, well, if they do this, then this could potentially happen. If they do this, this could potentially happen. And likewise, like almost like a tree diagram. But only nominally think with those in mind reacting to what the players do. I don't like to pre-script to say A, B or C. I just roll with whatever they throw at me within the confines of the situation that's being set up. 
very similar in that front. I whether I'm running a game at a convention, running something you know casually for a bunch of friends, or whether I'm writing something for publication, I may have a number of possible endings in mind. I almost never have a particular ending in mind. So this means that if I'm writing stuff up for publication, particularly. I don't get to do that thing that a lot of uh, scenarios do, which is have this scripted climax in there. I may have a number of scenes which could be the end of the game, depending on what the players do or depending on whether their characters survive, but it's not like the entire game has been building up to this point and this is the very final thing. So I'll tend to include a section entitled something like Wrapping Everything Up, which just explains how... The game may end depending on certain decisions the players have made, uh, things the characters have done, where they've ended up, who's still alive and in play, and you know, then just come up with what I hope are satisfying resolutions based on those parameters. How about you, Paul? A bit of a mixture. I mean, sometimes I've run games where, much like you described, that that they just come to an ending and you kind of judge that's the end. And some games I've had where I've got an ending in mind and it's it's usually a, a kind of a twist ending. The, the endings that I find tricky are endings when I read or I'm tempted to script that the cultist is going to do this thing at midnight on the 24th of January. What happens when my players get there at 1am? Well, is it all finished? I mean, or, or do I, or does the cultist just kind of sit there looking at his watch? Damn, those players haven't turned up yet. They can't, can't do the sacrifice yet. Same time again next night, you know, tomorrow, guys. I mean, I'd be tempted to go down the kind of Ozymandias route of them then turning up as he sat there, then thinking he's prepping to do his uh, his grand thing. And he goes on this, as much as I hate the word monologue, he does this monologue of saying what he's about to do. And then, yeah, I did it an hour ago, you morons. <laughs> <laughs> But isn't that a bit anticlimactic? I mean, I mean, it's it's either it's anticlimactic, or you just kind of whenever the players turn up, just about to to stop. It's like the the countdown clock in every bloody film that they manage to stop it at like two seconds to go. No, this this is why I like pulling the rug out from players occasionally and have that kind of thing. No, you had all the signs to say it was going to happen at this time. You failed. Live with the consequences of your failure. Not every scenario has a happy re- happy resolution or successful climax. But I think you want some sense of drama, and if that's if that feels a bit like a bit of a damp squib, then I don't. Know, it depends on what the outcome of that. Yeah, uh, let's yeah, say he's casting yeah. a spell. What the outcome of that would be? Yeah, if it yeah. is fairly low key, then yeah, that is a bit shit to just have it end there. But if it's something, for instance, he's opened a dimensional portal, something is about to come through, then that could potentially lay the ground for a sequel, perhaps. Or it could be then, yeah, you're not showing down with the cultist, you're showing down with whatever's just about to turn up. Yeah, so actually the situation's got even worse because you weren't there on time. So I think you need to, to kind of think through what will happen if that bad thing that the players are supposed to be stopping, what, what happens if that thing happens? With the twist endings, I think it's important to have foreshadowed those. So if we think about films like uh, Sixth Sense or The Usual Suspects, there's a big twist at the end of those. We don't need to give spoilers. Probably, you know, I'm guessing most people have seen those. That's why I picked them. But when you when you watch those films back again, you're like, oh yeah, oh that thing. Well, it should have been obvious. Oh, but it wasn't. Uh, whereas I think if if there isn't that, and it's just a total surprise at the end, it's like, oh well, I would never have figured that out. How how was I ever supposed to know that was going to happen? Yeah. And that can be quite alienating and jarring. So I think we want, as viewers, as players, we want to be intrigued and we want to have it set up almost such that, yeah, we might kind of guess what's going on, but we certainly want when that reveal or that twist comes out, it feels all the more fun if you're kind of kicking yourself thinking, oh, damn, I should have seen that. (laughs) The main problem I tend to have with scripted endings, or at least bad scripted endings is the one you find too many of them that are dependent on expectations about what the player characters will do i've seen this in a number of published scenarios and campaigns and i always find this a very difficult thing to deal with as a keeper 
Which is that idea that, you know, of course the players will go off and they'll investigate this and they'll have picked up this item or, you know, they'll have interacted with this NPC in this particular way and then they'll get to the ending and they'll know what to do and they'll have the materials and, of course, they will perform the ritual at this stage despite the fact that, you know, there is some beastie going along biting their heads off. And I I think if you've got the whole thing dependent on on a set of expectations like that you're setting yourself up for either failure or worse railroading the players well, i think though even if you're running a published uh, scenario or campaign that you should always as a keeper be ready to adapt it perhaps even on the fly depending on you know what the players choose to do that you know, you should never try to shoehorn in that scripted climax that the players want to go off and do something else perhaps they have to deal with the consequences of not dealing with uh, whatever was happening there that they haven't engaged with uh, perhaps you can shift the location or change the details of it in such a way that they do interact with it but yeah never let yourself be constrained by what's on the page there one issue i've had with some call of cthulhu campaigns in the past has been that they're very much kind of feel a bit like boss fights at the end Mm. and in a pop cthulhu campaign yeah bring it on but if my players have chosen to play relatively passive non-combative characters and now they're supposed to be sneaking into this cult base and, you know, blowing up and taking on lots of, uh, you know, cultists. It's like, well, you know, they're probably going to get wiped out before they get even through the main gate. Either they have to be, you know, unfeasibly clever and sneaky, and maybe they're not particularly sneaky people, or they get, or we have a TPK. I, I can think of one particular campaign that that resonates with, yeah. But again, I mean, that comes down to scenario design, and, you know, trying to, to put in inappropriate endings. Well, I think there is this expectation, possibly, again, because of where Call of Cthulhu came out and, you know, in terms of its origins in, in games like D&D, that they, there will be these big fights at the end, that uh, combat is, is the way to resolve problems. And there, there certainly are some published Call of Cthulhu scenarios and campaigns where that's not the case. Oh, most definitely, yeah, mm. yeah. But it does seem to be the default assumption that at the end you're going to tool up and you're going to shoot something in the face. Well, that's a much easier thing to put in as the climax, it's almost a kind of a lazy thing to do for it to be... A, how we, how will we going to end this? Oh, it'll be a big fight. Well, fine, but, you know, can't you think of something a bit more exciting? Because that's not... As we talked about in other episodes, also, that's not necessarily horrifying. We had an incident fairly recently as well with... It was actually with Matt Knott's Gaslight game where he was running the different scenarios at Sacraments of Evil and then one, one of his own at the end. That he said afterwards what the kind of progression of things would be and think, oh, yeah, that kind of, that kind of makes sense. But we were pushed right in the face of an antagonist, particularly well, what we th- what we then learnt was about halfway through. But we th- I thought particularly this is going to be the conclusion because it's this is the bad guy we've met him, and we took him out in a somewhat sideways manner. We summoned one of the creatures that he was using to take him to the court of Azathoth, for example. But it was going to be a more traditional showdown. Now I personally prefer the way it ended up being a more, if anything, kind of bleak and a more tense scene where prepping that ritual making sure that everything goes right passing the role and not going crazy in the um in the process etc and laying that down as a nice carefully formulated plan rather than i run in i fire a gun i stab someone but it, it seemed a lot more i don't know partly tense but also more satisfying in a way hmm. of you using an enemy's weapon against him and then you know forcing a very hmm. almost premature ending but still an ending nonetheless yeah, I think there is a, there's a pressure on the GM, I think, to kind of bring an exciting ending. Sometimes, you know, what Matt was saying there, it can short-circuit an entire game. I remember, oh, some years ago, I was running a D&D campaign at the club. The player characters were all uh, members of this village where they'd fallen foul of some ancient necromancer who decided he was going to wipe the village out. And the way he did so was there was this this dead dragon that had been dead for a long, long time, this massive thing that they just thought was part of a mountain range. 
And the necromancer went inside and yeah, he, he basically cut a hole in its hide, went inside and was there in the head of the dragon trying to you know, perform a necromantic ritual to revive it. The player characters had learnt about this and they were you know, fighting their way through the dungeon, you know, which was the, the innards, the body of this rotten dragon, making their way up to the head to try to catch up with him and stop him. About halfway through, Sam, one of the players, looks down at his sheet and says, Oh, hang on. I've got this ritual that my character can do, which basically sanctifies a body in such a way that no necromancer can ever resurrect it. I'll, I'll just sit down and do that here. <laughs> Grand plan. Boiled. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, it meant that half the scripted adventure was just out the window there. They still had to try to catch up with the necromancer and deal with him and stuff like that, but it's the, the immediate existential threat was just godlike that. Hmm. <laughs> Speaking of which, have you got any experiences with games that have just ended anticlimactically? Yeah, I've played games where the player characters have become separated towards what became the end. So, you know, a couple get taken off by the Mygo into some underground chamber. A couple of them have gone off into another room in another house. Somebody's gone and got on a train or something. And it's like, well, as GM, I can see I'm not actually going to be able to bring all these together. Actually, that, you know, that kind of feels like that could be the ending here. So it's kind of downbeat, but you can sort of say to people, well, actually, you know, you're two, you're down there with the Migo. I don't think you're getting out of there. And they're, and they're like, yeah, I don't think we are. And the person on the train, they, they don't want to come back. You know, they've, they've decided to, they're getting out of Dodge. So what we did then was just do a little scene with each character and sort of wrap their, wrap their story up. I mean, this is something that I think I got from a, a game that you ran, Scott, of running like a coda or an epilogue for each character and, and I really like that because I've played in a number of I guess particularly convention games because you know they have a beginning a middle and an end quite quite quickly and it, it all sort of goes off and there's an end and you know maybe my character isn't that involved or I didn't really grasp part of the complexity of the plot and then I'm, I'm left and you're like oh I don't really know what happened to my character and mm. oh it's all over now we're never going to go back there oh that's a bit I'm kind of left feeling a bit you know a bit unsatisfied yeah this is something I do an awful lot uh, particularly in one shots perhaps uh, sometimes in campaigns it's just a, a way of I, I think providing a resolution to everyone at the table I think it works particularly well for horror games where the characters or the surviving characters are fundamentally changed by their experiences. They've been through something transformative and traumatic. And it's a question of just going around to each player in question, sort of saying, right, yeah, we, we've reached the end of this, this particular story, this, you know, this game, but your character is going on after this. How are they shaped by it? What has happened? You know, this may take the form of a, a scene that you know, the player describes or maybe even plays out with the, the GM where you see that you know, perhaps they've, um, you know, through their encounter with Amigo, perhaps they had something implanted in them that is, is just growing and changing them or perhaps they've, they've become so paranoid about what's happened that they can no longer trust that the people around them are human and end up being recluses and hiding from society. Or it may be they find a way to move past it and become, you know, functional human beings again over time. But, you know, it's down to the player to describe this and narrate it in, in some way that sort of builds on the story and, and provides a resolution. And often what we'll call for now is a, is a luck roll at the end there. And yeah. so maybe like I referred to that character, they've, they've been in some sort of confrontation and maybe they've misinterpreted it and gone a bit insane. And maybe they've kind of got the idea that, you know, they're vampires or something like that. And, you know, I'll say, OK, well, make a luck roll. Well, if they make the luck roll then, you know, they, they, they've got on the train and essentially they're away scot-free, you know, oh, well, okay, well, you get away and, you know, you read in the papers the next day about this devastation that took place, you know, from the place that you escaped from and, you know, you managed to get in touch with some, some other friends and, you know, it all turns out kind of generally rosy. But if they fail the luck roll, 
then you know maybe they they think they've got away and we describe a scene and they're sat on the train and it's it's a night train and you know that you know you're looking at the newspaper and it's all fine but then you kind of look up and you can see the the man opposite you and his eyes are glowing and he's looking up at you and he kind of gets up out of his chair and he's kind of pushing through the, the train carriage towards you and we'll just fade to black there and that is particularly cruel because if you're using the luck spend mechanics in, in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition, by the time you get to that, at the end of that game, you've probably blown quite a lot of your luck. So if you're making that last luck roll for a happy ending, you don't have much chance. <laughs> and you kind of get the players buy into that. So you can sort of say, you know, are you happy with that? They know it's the end. They know they're not going to revisit that. If they're not going to revisit that character and it's a horror story and it just gives it a, a kind of a, a horror story ending... One of the most memorable coders or endings like that for a character I remember was from one uh, one scenario I ran a, quite a while ago, uh, where there was a chance that some of the players or some of the characters rather might end up turning into ghouls, but it wouldn't be an immediate revelation. So they think, "Yep, we've we've cleared up our missions. We're all we're all on the way home now." And why the hell's my hand turning into a claw? <laughs> and um, the character just said part, uh, to the casually to the uh, player next to them, "Can I have a look at your gun?" Yeah, he had a real good look at it, just <laughs> under his chin. <laughs> right. I thought, yeah, that's that's a very satisfying ending that stuck with me for a long time. I remember one of the best endings. I won't mention which scenario as far as a published scenario. There was a character in it who was particularly cold and psychopathic. I mean, it's the way the character was written. And the player played him marvellously. And it gets around to the end, and he's one of the few surviving characters. The antagonists uh, have captured another one and are basically doing experiments on him, changing him. And this, the guy playing this, this psychopathic character just comes up behind the two antagonists. He's managed to hide out of this way. He comes up behind the two of them as they're vivisecting this other player character on the table, looks over, smiles and says can i join in <laughs> we just left it there. <laughs> i think this technique is particularly nice for two reasons one is that it allows an ending for the character but also it allows the player to have a kind of a say at the end of the game so they're not just sort of sat there whilst everybody gets up and leaves and thirdly i guess it kind of accommodates for all sorts of endings, all sorts of loose, disparate threads that, that, that seem to unravel. It doesn't necessarily tie them up, but it sort of mm. says where it goes. Yeah, I mean, the important thing for me there is that emotional resolution, that catharsis. This is why, as well, I mean, you know, even before we get to that coda stage, I will quite often, I, uh, this applies more to one-shots, I will quite often find some climactic point or some particularly intense point in the game uh it may even be a cliffhanger and just sort of say you know right shall we end things there maybe the characters you know have all uh holed up in in the storeroom they've got guns there ready to you know repel whatever has broken in but they know that the bullets probably aren't going to help against that the building's on fire one of them's bleeding out on the ground and you know the, the door splinters inwards and rather than playing out that last scene i'll just say right you know Shall we leave things there? So it's a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of ending. You know, how many of them do you think are out there? Oh, not many. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we um, can take them. That's a great ending. I mean, that's that's a classic ending. And, you know, I think it doesn't necessarily occur to us to do that in games. But sometimes, that, like you say, Scott, that, that can be great fun. Mm. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I love doing that. <laughs> End on a high point. <laughs> That's, that's one thing that uh, sparks a memory in me as well, thinking of emotional buying, because it's one instance of a very, I think, a very failed ending, is if you don't have that. We, we had one in a campaign where we effectively were just stood watching all the pretty lights go by, wondering, well, what do we do? Do we do it now? What do we do? We haven't got a clue. Um, okay, let's wait a bit longer. And the end just kind of came and we didn't even notice. Yeah. Oh, God, yes, yes. You have reminded me of some of the worst games I've played. And again, I won't sort of mention any names. But, you know, a couple of games I've played uh, where we had reached this sort of scripted climax. Like you say, it was standing there watching the pretty lights. Well, you know, the GM just sort of narrated the ending to us and we were spectators to us. And that is the least satisfying kind of fucking ending you can have in a game. You can't if, beat read aloud text, though. <laughs> if you are a GM and you do this in a game with me, I will punch you. <laughs> Table flip, you will hear the roar. <laughs> You'll kick him off his chair. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
Well, sometimes the ending isn't the end. What do we do after the end? So the game's all over, and do people just pack up and go home? Well, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Usually they speak to each other, and uh, <laughs> hopefully people want to talk about the game. I mean, it doesn't always happen. Often people have got some questions. You know, mm-hmm. what what was that guy? What was that thing doing? You know, what was that thing you were keeping secret or whatever? So it's nice to kind of chat things over, and it's nice if people want to do that. I think it shows that they're engaged with the game. Mm-hmm. It's something that happened, uh, I remember, from a couple of Gen Cons ago when I w- uh, went out there and played Gatsby for the first time. The, you know, people were getting together saying, what the hell was happening on your table? What the hell happened here? What was this? Where was that bloody ring? <laughs> there were lots lots of uh, people kind of mining each other for info that they hadn't worked out at their table. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's nice. And yeah, sometimes they will just play and ask the GM what was going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had this happen to me a few times at uh, conventions. Uh, oh, and I've had GMs refuse to tell me. Really? Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, there's, one, there's one I can think of uh, that went to the vampire game that I mentioned. He was kind of infamous amongst his gaming circle that he ran a Merp campaign and had lots of secrets even left at the end of the campaign and still 10 years later refuses to tell anyone what it was all mm. about. There is no excuse for that. I generally like to do a debrief of kind of the stuff that maybe they didn't find out in the background that puts stuff into context. And then you get kind of look around the group of, oh, right, so that's what it was about. Kind of that realisation of the wider picture then. Yeah, I tend to answer questions that people have, have sort of posed to me. But I think there's also the the whole thing of asking you know, what people enjoy. So rather than answering in-game questions, kind of answering yeah asking players what they enjoyed and you know did that work for you and you know would you like to do that sort of thing again and you know what were the strengths of the game i mean this has a couple of purposes i mean the first is i mean it's it's very very useful if you're trying to gain experience as a gm learning what you do well and what you don't do well and sometimes it can be a painful thing to hear particularly if the feedback you get at the end of it is you know that game was shit and everything you did was shit and it's shit and you should not gm a game because you're shit but um, it's a real constructive feedback there (laughs) you've never taken any notes of that scott however many times i say it Uh, but but the other, I mean, perhaps um, more useful version of it is if you're playing with the same people fairly regularly, just trying to learn what people do and don't like in games so you can tailor them accordingly. Mm-hmm. Moving back a bit to the unanswered questions bit, uh, another, I think I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, the thing that's happened to me a number of times at conventions, which always amuses the hell out of me, is people coming up afterwards because, you know, their characters have done something unexpected in the game and pushed things in a strange direction. And people coming up afterwards saying, well, I hope I didn't break the game or break the plot for you. And it's, no, 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 that's, but, yeah, they, they, this, this was all designed for you to, to do stuff. Don't, yeah, it's, it's that weird thing that players get sometimes that there are right and wrong things for their characters to do. And if they don't follow the game as, as it's written, they've somehow done something wrong. Damn it, I strive to find the wrong options and push every button in that category. <laughs> There's one more thing that occurs to me here that this is pretty unusual, I think. We don't. I've, I've only experienced this once or twice. I experienced it playing Dog Eat Dog, and it's a very confrontational game that reflects the real world in in a kind of abstracted way. And people got very emotionally invested in it. And at the end of it, the guy running the game. It, it might sound a bit pretentious, but he did the step which one would do in counselling of sort of getting people to sort of be clear that that after the game they're not still associating with their character so when doing role playing and when doing counseling sometimes you sort of sit back and say you know i'm paul fricker i'm not that character that i was playing and so on it just kind of get yourself out of that headspace that's it sounds a bit pretentious we did a, a downscaled version of that yeah in terms of the game sometimes you know people do get quite invested in their mm. characters and they are a bit pissed off at what somebody else has done in character. That may be reflected, and it may not be, you know, by the other person. But I think it's just sometimes, if you feel it's necessary, you know, just clear the air. I'm wary of sort of making this sound too serious, but it is quite serious, mm. really, if, if oh, people yeah. are pissed, genuinely pissed off with each other after the game. And that can be, you know, it can be nothing to do with the 
GM or it can be, you know, partly to do with the GM. So either way, and we're not just talking about what a GM does, we're talking about what everybody does. So, you know, try and clear the air and, and say, you know, I'm sorry I killed your character, but, you know, it was kind of unavoidable and, you know, I was a homicidal maniac. I can't help it. I think the positive flip side to all that negativity we've just been talking about, though, is that um, I think particularly where you've got people who are coming together and gaming for the first time, whether it's a new group, a club, a convention or whatever, that, you know, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, it's a bonding experience. So I think as well, an important part of that after the game thing is is that just out of character chat, getting to know each other, you know, going off to the bar for a pint or or, uh, or just sitting there having a cup of tea afterwards. Yeah, I think that really sort of helps bond people together. And then that shared experience sometimes, you know, years later of of getting back together and just sort of saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you remember that game we were in? You remember when your character did this or Mm. that? And yeah, I think that that's that's a fantastic thing. And of course, the game's gone particularly well. You might also want to run a sequel at some stage. If the game has ended in such a way that, you know, set up things in an interesting manner that you can build upon for something else, or, you know, as we were talking about before, the fact that um, you played a game of uh, Escape from Innsmouth that turned into Masks of Nialathotep, mm-hmm. the surviving characters, you know, can certainly go off and have other adventures together. Yeah, it's kind of cool because you've got elements then that you're actually invested in and that you can reincorporate and that your, your players are familiar with. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It is time once again to thank the people who have given us money on Patreon. Uh, We do appreciate each and every one of the backers. Uh, Your money means a lot to us. It helps us pay for our hosting costs and the bandwidth costs and all the things without which uh, the good friends of Jackson Lies simply wouldn't happen. And it's important to us three that the show remains free for listeners to hear. And what we offer the Patreon backers is we try to do something extra. So Scott a little while ago, did a reading of the music of Eric Zahn, which we put out to backers only. And we've got a couple of other projects in the works, one of which is the second issue of our fanzine entitled The Blasphemous Tome. This is a fanzine which is published only in print. It's about A5, small format, paperback magazine of the kind that those with long memories will remember from the 1980s and so on. And it focuses on Lovecraft and horror and the same kind of things that the show uh, covers. Yeah, it it's, tends to be very tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's light material and it's very much for people who are familiar with, with the podcast. It was our goal to try to make this look like an artefact from the 1980s, complete with manual cutting and pasting and, and you know, margins slightly askew and so on. And so Matt, bless him, has gone through and done all that, certainly to the last issue and will be doing it again to this issue. And content-wise, in issue one, we had the horror from the shed, a scenario, a kind of generic horror scenario based upon some old guy who worked in a shed as a kind of homage to uh, my potting shed where we used to record the show. And this time round, we've got a new scenario that we're putting together all about a blasphemous home. And three guys that produce it. Hmm, original idea there. <laughs> <laughs> we're nothing if not meta. <laughs> and this is posted out to all of the backers. Those that pledge at $1 get a copy those that pledge at $3 get a signed copy, and those that pledge at $5 get two copies, one of which is signed. A yeah, bit like me, if you're a completist collector, then you get one to keep and one to use. The Blasphemous Tome Issue 2 will go out to everyone who is a backer of the good friends of Jackson Liars at a certain cut-off date, when we actually had the thing finished and produced. This will probably be sometime early in the new year, but will confirm a firm date soon. And one thing that the three of us would like to see is that we're reaching out to you as the listeners to see if you want to get some content in the Blasphemous Tome issue too. Uh, We're looking for the most twisted, horrific, nightmarish monster or creation that you can think of. That we want to see it in about, ideally, 500 words or less, because you'd be surprised how much room 500 words takes up, putting that into the tome. 
if, like me, on Christmas Day, you'll be sat by your fire penning articles for the blasphemous tome, because it's the only time you've got with um, <laughs> got to work on stuff with the hideous workload we've got before Christmas, um, we are looking at a deadline for submissions by the end of the year. And we do have some new people to thank this episode. Uh, we have, in particular, one person we are going to thank through song. Oh, God. This is something, this is something we do for our $5 backers. If, if you are generous and foolhardy enough to send $5 an episode to us, we will literally sing your praises. Don't well, you mean inflict noise upon them? Yeah. Well, yeah, this is probably a misuse of the word literally. Yeah, we, we call it singing. We make noises with our mouths. And our first thanks goes out to returning Patreon, Ronan Kennedy. Thank you very much, Ronan, and welcome back. Hey, welcome back, Ronan. And we also offer our thanks to, and I do apologise profusely if I'm mispronouncing your name here, Mika Tertianen. So thank you, Mika. Indeed, thank you very much, Mika. Thank you, Mika. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, certainly the moment I've not been waiting for, <laughs> Drew Scar, this one goes out to you. You've only got yourself to blame. Thank you. I probably put in more thought to ending games than I do to any other stage of it, thinking about it, particularly when I'm running one-shots and convention games. When I say put in more thought, I don't mean, you know, in the preparation or stuff like that. I mean, at the table, I'm constantly thinking of where things are going, how I can push things to a dramatic ending, looking for good places to stop it, looking for ways to try to wrap up all those loose ends and push things to a conclusion. And... Yeah, I probably put in more brain power towards that than I do to any other single part of it. Because for me, the ending of a game, well, I mean, it's the end of it. It's the bit that people will remember because it's the last thing that happened. It's it's the the satisfying conclusion to everything, well, if you're lucky. Um, you know, it's it's that note that people go out on. So, yeah, it's probably the most important part of the game. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, you know, you you try and start well and you try and end well in the bit in the middle. Yeah, hopefully that's good too, but it kind of takes care of itself if you set it up well. The ends of films and stories, I really like good endings. Yeah, they're, they're to some extent the most memorable part because either the last bit of it that you remember and if it has that bang and has that resolution to it, then it makes an impact. And now that we've come to the end of the end, it's time for... Ask Jackson. And our question this week comes from listener Linus Larson. Dear Jackson, the baying of hounds grows nearer. My cursed non-Euclidean construction made them aware of my scent. Still, this unique insight into trans-dimensional manufacture may save my soul, if not my sanity. I plan to hide within a Klein bottle. Free from edges, all angles are rendered null and void. Even so, their shrill laughter mock my efforts. I've crawled into it time and time again, yet remain outside and exposed to their gnashing moors. Pray, how do I get inside it? With kind regards, L. So, you've got yourself into trouble by playing around with non-Euclidean constructions. I was going to say, some of us had to look up what a Klein bottle was. It is sort of a, a three-dimensional answer to a Merbius strip. It's a, um, a bottle that only has one side. And MC Escher would have loved it. It's almost where you, you pour liquid into the bottom of it, and then it wraps around itself and ends up back where it started, inside. Yes, that is as confusing as I tried to make it. And hence the problem, because if you're inside a Klein bottle, you're still outside it. Because it so only you, has one so side. So, in fact, you're inside it all the time. Is that what you're saying, Scott? We are at this... St in fact, there is the answer. Yeah. By standing outside of it, you're just as much inside as if you were inside of it. 
But fundamentally, I think the problem is that you are a three-dimensional shape. One of the best solutions to this would be having your biography written by Dan Brown so you could be rendered as a two-dimensional character, which would then make you be absolutely perfect to be put in the climb bottle. Well, I think it's time to end the ending. Yep, so it's a final ending from me. Yeah, it's a climactic cheerio from me. And it's a thin ending from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Oh, I, I'll be back in a minute. Okay. All right. Something's just come in the room. Sake. <laughs> Motherfucker. I think I won the sweepstake. Matt. <laughs> 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 oh, Would just... you like to describe what's just entered? The... Matt just left the room for a couple of minutes and has just returned bearing something that's bigger than him. <laughs> Scott, would you like to describe it in its full No, you know, <laughs> no, beauty? I would not. <laughs> It, 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 it is an abomination. It is an affront to all decency. It is the worst kind of blasphemy. Oh, I, I, I feel soiled by being in the same room as this fucking it's thing. It's lovely. I had it in my bed on Friday night. Until my wife wanted to get in the bed, it had to get out because my bed is big, but it's not that big. It is a massive plush Cthulhu. Hold it up, Matt. It is literally as tall as Matt and about about three foot across. And it's Matt is holding it up in front of him, and I cannot see Matt any longer. That's how big it is. I I only have one question, Matt. Uh Is it flammable? (laughs) I hope not. Let's find out. <laughs> that turned up to our Thanksgiving dinner on Friday when everybody was sat around the table and he had to give me a call to let me know so that we could sneak it in the house without you seeing it, Scott, so we could hold on to it for today. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when he went to the car and came back with that. <laughs> I, I, I have never felt quite this lost for words. Well, at least not any words that aren't just base profanities. <laughs> Oh, I, I have never understood before quite in such a, a, a visceral way how Cthulhu can be sanity blasting. I, I, I'm sorry, is that fucking thing staying in here for the rest of the recording? Yeah, yeah. every week, right? <laughs> the microphone doesn't pick up the look of hatred just glaring from Scott's face at the moment. Do you want some dice, Scott, for the sand roll? <laughs> uh, it would be redundant. <laughs> just assume double zero. <laughs> look at him. He's so cute. I, I get the feeling he's looking at you, Scott. <laughs> look at the little light in his eyes. So where do I get my I, He's getting closer to me, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Stay. <laughs> they're, they're not making them anymore. They only did. Uh, <laughs> they're not making them anymore. I, 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 no, good, seriously. the petition worked. <laughs> made one and broke the mold. No, no, they made about ten, uh, ten or it's either ten or twenty. But um, a load of them went to the states, and then from they there, didn't come from the states. No, they're made in China. Um, oh they originally God. they were making them at a factory in China, and then they were trying to work out logistics. They thought the best way was to ship it from there to the US in a shipping container, and then distribute it across the world from that from a central hub. The shipping alone on it from the US would have been one thousand two hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so they decided <laughs> the look of disbelief on Scott's face. Um, they eventually settled on deal where you um, they sent everything to the US went that was just going to the US went there. But then everyone else worldwide um, could order shipping directly from the factory in China, and it was one, $197 to do so. So six times less than what it would have been if you'd... Uh, Bargain. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> worth every penny. <laughs> but that even alone was, was higher than the cost of the actual thing. Um, the production cost of it was only about $160. But they decided, because of the logistics of moving the thing and shipping it and storing it, that they went, fuck it, we're not doing any more, just those. So they've become, a, say, quite a collector's piece. There's, say, such a limited number of them. So I'm not sure if it's the only one in the UK or not, but, yeah, he's it's here. Still, it's still one too many. 
he's coming with us to contingency, you know. He's going to be sat in the corner of the room. Apparently, it was going <laughs> to. Matt was going to put it in the passenger seat of his Mercedes Benz. Yeah, it, but it was too big. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it won't fit in the front of the C-Class. We had to literally squeeze it into the back so it was across all three seats. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> have you checked to see if there's like any you know people concealed in it that might have been smuggled in? Well, like there people is a, smuggling. There is a plastic central core to it that holds up the head because otherwise it would uh, right. just flop down. Yeah. So there might be someone hidden in there. There could be I all sorts of stuff stashed in there. Yeah. But it's only about 37 quid on import duty, so it couldn't have been cocaine. <laughs> I don't think I'd calculated the import duty on the cocaine mat if yeah. there were cocaine in it. But that, that, that is not normally the way customs deals with cocaine. <laughs> but uh, even when I've got the, the box he originally came in, I thought, well, that's quite a big box. And then when I undid said box, it was a bit like what I'd got with a oh, what was it? A stitch from Lilo and Stitch soft toy a few years back. Like, he just, yeah, just exploded out of the box. So it's been kind of vacuum packed or something, all just stuffed in. Really tightly squeezed into this box that was still huge. And that really uh, had me and the other guy from the postal office carry it out to the car because it was so big and unwieldy. <laughs> it's worth it for every penny of the look of your face. <laughs> we should do episode 100 about that. A whole show about him. <laughs> I feel like our work is done. Yep. <sighs> Look at his little wings. Have you seen his wings? Oh yeah, he's got wings on his back. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I have seen the wings. And? Oh, no, 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 and <laughs> no, and Matt. What? Sloppy tail. All right. Oh, oh yeah, he's got Sorry, tail. sorry. I thought you were about to point out that it was anatomically correct. <laughs> it is. He's got tentacles, wings, <laughs> tail. What do you want? For, for it to cease to exist. <laughs> oh, he's got to sit in the corner of my office now. Well, most of the room in your office, I'd have thought. Yep. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a tragedy if this bit hasn't recorded? <laughs> <laughs> I hope 